All right, well, I think we are ready to rock and roll, as they say. Is that, do I sound cool when I say that? <laughs> In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy, and we ask that you may send forth the Holy Spirit upon us today, especially as we prepare for this great feast of Pentecost this Sunday. We ask that you may guide all of our thoughts and our, our words, our, our actions, and that you may help us to always grow in love and appreciation for Jesus Christ. And we entrust this time into the hands of the merciful Father as we pray the prayer Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, we're, we're back again. So we're on session number four of this RCA for Catholics this summer. And just kind of a, a rehash of where, we, where we've been started with revelation. God reveals himself. He communicates himself to us. And our response to that is faith. And the, the most important thing God reveals to us is who he is, right? The fact that he's a trinity, three, three distinct persons in one God. So one God, three persons in the trinity. And so that was the first session. And then the next one was sacred scripture. One of the ways God reveals himself alongside, um, alongside tradition. And we kind of walk through the Bible and kind of how things build up to Jesus and God's work in all of that. And then last time we talked about kind of a little different take on, on the, that story of just talking the story of salvation. And, um, and just to, to recap that, so that God creates everything good. He creates us in his image and likeness, and not just good, but very good. And so he creates everything. It comes out of love. It comes from him. And so things are good. Things are perfect. But they've fallen, right? There's this great rupture that exists between us and God, between us and each other, between us and ourselves, between us and creation. So there's this brokenness that enters into the world. And then... God saves us. So this is salvation, right? God comes and rescues us. And he's, he's preparing the whole way for this to save us. And he does this in the Old Testament in so many different ways. But he definitively saves us in, in Jesus. So that's, that's what we're talking about today, is the salvation Jesus gives us. And then this constantly gets like applied to us, called sanctification, right? The, the, what Jesus wins for us is grace, is mercy, constantly like... Um, penetrates us in the sacraments, changes our lives. Uh, we get conformed to it through his grace, his mercy, um, through virtue, all those different things. So we're made holy, sanctification. And then we believe that Jesus Christ will return at the end of time. So that's, the, that's, the, uh, that's where we are um, in this kind of whole story. So we're talking about salvation today. And I think it's something really important for us to even just think about the fact that God comes to save us. Because I think maybe if, you know, every, every uh, issue or every, I guess, everywhere, every time period has its issues. But I, 
I would dare say that maybe our great issue in the church and probably in those that call themselves Christian or Catholic is that we're missing the idea of salvation. The, the fact that like we need saved. And I think you, we see it in two extremes. I, on one extreme where people say, you know, we get so beat, beat up and worn down that we're not salvageable, right? That life is so terrible. And you see this in like hopelessness. We see this in dread that people experience, depression, the, the rise of suicide, that there's just such like this world is hopeless and I'm hopeless too. So we see this one extreme. And then in another extreme that's probably not, is probably related where it's like, I'm not that bad. Right, well, you know, I, and you hear this in a, a scary amount of times. I haven't killed anybody. I'm not that bad, right? I haven't, I haven't done anything too wrong. I'm, I'm doing okay, and I'm not that bad, right? And the saints always recognize they're like the greatest sinners, right? The fact that they need, they need a savior. And so we get between these two extremes. Either I'm not that bad, I'm doing okay, I'm trying my hardest, I'm better than that person over there. You look at all them. Um, or uh, I'm unredeemable. And maybe even one of the ways this, um, this shows up is what uh, people often are a lot of times now will call practical atheism, where people say, you know, they're Christian, they believe in God, but it has no effect in their lives. Has no effect. And say that knowing full well that that's all of us in some way, shape, or form, where we're like, yeah, I'm trying to live my faith, and then it's like, okay, I just went and got drunk, and that's, that's you know, not what God calls us to do. So, um, so to live as if God doesn't exist. Um, yeah. So that's, that's why this is so important. The fact that, one, we need saved, right? We need saved, but Jesus actually has saved us. There's, you know, we don't want to end with that, that hopelessness. So what we're going to do as we talk about Jesus today and the way he saves us and how he saves us and his life is basically just walk through this creed here, the second part of the creed. We profess it every Sunday at Mass. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of, God, of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. So that's what we're going to just kind of walk through uh, today. And the first thing we get is we get these four names, right? I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. So we get these four names given, applied to the second person of the Trinity, right? Jesus here. So he's got a name, right? God has a name in, in Jesus. And Jesus literally in Aramaic means God saves. So his name is what he's all about. His name says God saves his people. And, you know, what are we saved from, right? That's, that's all that we kind of just talked about in that last uh, section, that we actually needed saved, that we're saved, saved from something. And, you know, the, the Old Testament constantly prepares people for the fact that God comes to save, to rescue his people. All right, and then we get, the, get Christ. 
Christ is not Jesus' last name. I know that's sometimes, you know, maybe it's like little kids, like think that Joseph's last name was Christ too, and when Mary got married, her name became Mary Christ, and now they got this son, his name's Jesus Christ. That, that's not what, what Christ, Christ is. So Christ comes from the, the Greek word Christos, which means the anointed one. So he's the Messiah, he's the, the Christos, and the, uh, the Jewish people were always looking forward to the Messiah. And there's even one kind of interaction he has in the gospel where they say, how, how long are you going to hold us in suspense? Are you going to tell us that you're the Messiah? And he's, they're, they're constantly waiting for this, um, this fact. To, they're waiting for the Messiah. And even one of the great moments in the gospel is when, when Peter recognizes that he's the Messiah. And Jesus tells him, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but only my Father in heaven. So what sort of Messiah, you know, the Jewish people were hoping for, they were anticipating? That's always kind of a, a bit of a question. And maybe, it's, um, maybe it's, it gets a, a little uh, over, maybe a little overblown, the fact that they were hoping for something a little bit more political, right? That they were looking for a Messiah, that the, the Jewish people are in the Holy Land and the Romans are ruling them. So... The Jewish people were hoping for somebody to, uh, to oh, defeat their enemies, right? Let's get rid of these Romans. And that's why a lot of the people who they thought were going to be the Messiah, there's people keep popping up all the time like, is this guy the Messiah? And then they die when the Romans kill him. Um, so they were hoping for this uh, political Messiah, but Jesus, kind of re Jesus reveals that their real enemy is not the Roman Empire. Their real enemy is sin, is death. And that's what Jesus comes to defeat. So he's not a political Messiah. He's actually one, he's one that saves us from, from everything. And that's always something good to remember, that uh, politics does not equal salvation, right? Uh, Karl Marx, the father of communism, is one that tried to purport political solutions as, uh, as that that's going to save the world. And... Uh, yeah, that's not true. So, and even we even like look out in our world today, and and you know almost every politician, you know, claims that their political ideas are going to save the world, and you know no matter who they are, and that's that's never the case, and that's overly harsh and overly general generalized. But our hope is in Jesus Christ. So, all right. So he's also the only Son of God. So we, um, we believe that Jesus Christ is, and we talked about this with the Trinity, that he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. So Jesus is God, the Father is God, and the Holy Spirit is, is God. And so he's the third person. So there are one God, three distinct persons. And this is what the... What the, um, what the, the early church is wrestling with constantly, is how is this possible? That Jesus is God, that the Father's God, that there's a distinction between them, right? Jesus prays to the Father. When Jesus is there, you hear the Father's voice, so he's not the Father, but he is still God because he says, I and the Father are one. So they're wrestling with this, and one of the, one of the ways that this comes up is the Arian controversy. So Arius uh, was a priest, and uh, started basically spreading this teaching that caught like wildfire that Jesus isn't really God. So their motto was, there was a time when he was not. 
So there was a time when Jesus did not exist, basically. So he wasn't eternal. And so, um, so they had the Council of Nicaea, right? We pray the Nicene Creed. That was in 325. That kind of definitively dealt with the question, but they still had like issues for decades later. So basically, uh, it was, they would say that Jesus isn't really God. He's just God's greatest creation. And this whole Nicene Creed that says, no, no, he's God from God. He's light from light. He's true God from true God. Say that Jesus really is God. That's that whole thing. I think I mentioned this when we were talking about the Trinity as at the Council of Nicaea, uh, Arius is there. He's going on and on about how Jesus isn't really God. And St. Nicholas, the real St. Nicholas, not this kind of like foo-foo Santa Claus guy that all he does is drink Diet Coke and eat all your cookies. Um, St. Nicholas has had enough and he walks across the Council of Nicaea and punches uh, Arius right in the face. St. Nicholas got kicked out of the Council of Nicaea for that because they're like, you know, you're right, Nicholas, but this is not how we treat each other. So, <laughs> did you say it sure is? <laughs> yeah. Actually, I one time, one time for a talk I gave, I, I rewrote the, uh, the words to jolly old St. Nicholas to talk about the Council of Nicaea but I don't remember it off the top of my head. I know it started, a jolly old St. Nicholas Langer haymaker this way. Um, don't you let poor Arius have anything more to say. I don't, that's, yeah. All right, and then Jesus is, he's our Lord, which them's fighting words in this Roman Empire as they're going around saying Jesus is the Lord because that means the emperor is not. If Jesus is the Lord, that means he's the one you worship and not some statue of the empire or some statue of Zeus or, or Jupiter or whoever it is. So he's, he's the one, right? He is the Lord. He's the, the supreme being, really. And so it seems like just something that we call Jesus, but those are actually really important things. And then even with this, the Lord, um, this, you see under here, liar, lunatic, or the Lord, C.S. Lewis, in the, the middle of the uh, 20th century, was a, an English writer. And he talks about, um, at that time, there was a lot of people that said, well, Jesus isn't really, they don't think Jesus is God. He's just a good man, right? He's just a, a virtuous man, a great teacher, and, but he's not actually God. And C.S. Lewis, in kind of debating this, said, actually, you, you can't really say that about Jesus, because he clearly says he's God, right? He says, before Abraham was, I am. Or he says, um, I and the Father are one. And he says, you will be with me in paradise, right? He's showing that he's God the whole time. So either he's not God, and he's telling everybody he's God, and he knows it, which makes him a liar, right? If he tells everybody he's God, but he's actually not, that makes him a liar, not a good person. Or he's not God and he thinks he's God, which makes him a lunatic, right? Put him in a straitjacket, get him some psychological help. If somebody says, you know, I'm God, right? If I walked around and saying, hey, I breathe this world into existence, you would say, all right, let's, let's take him somewhere. Or he's right, right? Or what he says is true. He leaves no middle ground, right? Either he's the Lord or he's a liar or a lunatic. There's no actual like middle ground in all of this with Jesus. He says, either you're with me or you're against me. 
there's no kind of like, he's a good guy, because either he's a liar and says he's God, or he's actually God. He's not just a, not just a good guy. So he compels a choice in that, right? He, you know, I think so often we've kind of just kind of let Jesus just kind of be this nice guy, but he actually compels a choice either to be for him and to be full-fledged about him or, or to ignore him. So we get these names of Jesus Christ in the, uh, in the creed there. And then we, as we kind of walk through his life, this next um, part, he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So everybody in here, I'm sure, knows most of these stories, but we're in RCIA for Catholics, and when you're in RCIA, sometimes you've gotten somebody who studied, you know, so much of the Bible, and they finally decided to kind of come to the Catholic faith, and sometimes you've got somebody who really doesn't know anything, and they're just curious about Jesus for the first time. So you kind of, you kind of got to hit the whole spectrum. So uh, we're hitting the whole spectrum as to how these stories go. So it all starts in the first chapter of Luke's Gospel, where in the fullness of time we hear an angel, Gabriel, comes to a young woman who's betrothed, not yet married, but like kind of engaged, but something a little bit more serious than being engaged to this man named Joseph, and uh, says you're going to be with child, right? She's a virgin. She's like, how's that going to happen? And the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and, and then the child will be there, and you'll name him Jesus, and says that he'll be great, he'll be the Savior, the Messiah, so that all happens, this Annunciation. There's also an Annunciation of uh, Mary's cousin, Elizabeth, who's well past childbearing years, has a, has a son, John the Baptist, be Jesus' second cousin then, and uh, with Zechariah, which just kind of gives a word of caution to everybody who thinks they're past childbearing years, right? Um, there's hope, I know. You know, I was talking to somebody, I'm, I'm going to see my family next week, and I'm hoping my mom's going to tell me she's going to have a baby sister for me. You know, my mom's been watching these, so this is going to be great. Hi, Mom. Hoping for a girl. Ah. I find it funny that some of you could finish that sentence for me, that I was hoping for a baby sister. I need new jokes. How about a niece? I do have, yeah, there's a niece waiting for me up there. All right, so the, the, angel, the angel comes and, uh, and, you know, says she's going to be with child, and then Jesus is born, and that happens in uh, Luke chapter 2 and Matthew's chapter 1 and 2. And it's interesting when you look at these two Gospels. So Luke has this story of the Annunciation of the birth to Mary, and then it's got their trip down to Bethlehem. Matthew starts off with the long genealogy, the family history of Jesus, and kind of all, the, all his relatives. And then it gets to the angel coming to Joseph. And then it has, you know, the Magi coming, and then Jesus, our Joseph is warned in a dream to, to get the child out of there, and then to come back. So when you look at these two Gospels and what they have about the stories of the birth of Jesus... Luke seems to be pretty clearly from Mary's perspective, and Matthew pretty clearly from Joseph's perspective, which is kind of nice that you get these two kind of complementary things. They don't contradict each other, but they have very different stories in them. Um, so it's, it's kind of, uh, kind of a, a beautiful thing, the way the, the Lord works. So 
Um, yeah, and so the novelty of this in all Christian religions, in, or amongst every other religion, so you think about in um, like Islam, for example, Muhammad is God's prophet, right? He's the one that shows the definitive way in the Quran to, to make it to heaven or to, to have a blessed life. Or even the Buddha, right? Buddha says, I found the way to God. Or even Confucius, right? The way to live a blessed life. So all these other religions, there's a human being that says, I've found the way to God. The difference in Christianity is God comes to us and finds us. Rather than a prophet or somebody with spiritual insight says, I found the way. Actually, God comes down and is the way for us. So it's very different of what, you know, the fact that God comes to find us, the fact that Jesus comes to save us. And it's even different, you know, some of the, the pagan gods uh, would walk around, right? They would come down into, and meddle, basically, in, in human affairs. But that's mostly what they're doing. They're meddling, they're causing mischief, they're getting people pregnant, right? Like, that's basically what the gods do in Greek mythology. Whenever they interact with human beings, they mischief. And, and they've got their favorites, right? They're like, oh, I'm going to help this one because they worship me. and These other people, heck with them. So, so it's very different. It's, an, it's a novel thing compared to any other world religion. And then, so why did the word become flesh? Right? Jesus comes to save us. And that's always the, the reminder that he wants to bring us back to God. Right? That he, wants to, he comes to us so that we might know God's love. So that, we, that God might be tangible to us. So that he's not some abstract idea, but he's tangible in Jesus Christ. And we call this the incarnation. Right? Uh, that's what we celebrate at Christmas. Maybe this word, incarnation, if we look at, you know, this part right here, carn, it's the same, same root that we have the word carnivore, right? A, a carnivore is a meat eater, a flesh eater. So the word incarnation literally is the enfleshment of God, right? God takes on flesh and is one of us. Also get the word carne asada in here. Great way to eat steak and Mexican food combined if you're into that, which I am. Uh, Right? So, so the enfleshment of God is what we celebrate at Christmas, the, that God becomes flesh and dwells among us. So I mentioned in one of these slides about the Council of, of uh, Nicaea in 325, really kind of, at least in the teaching, whether people accepted it or not, is that Jesus is truly God. The next issue that comes up, though, is, is Jesus truly man? So is he really one of us, or is... Uh, is he not? And uh, the answer is always yes. That Jesus Christ is true God and true man. Um, which just reminds me of if I had a top five song list that I hate, one of them would be, what if God was one of us? I hate that song because here's the lyrics. Maybe you've heard it. I don't know who sings it. Maybe it's somebody like Shania Twain or something like that. Does anybody know who actually sings it? Okay. Could, it could be. I don't know. If God had a face, what would he look like? And would you want to see, if you were faced with him in all his glory, what would you ask just one question, right? Yeah. What if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus, trying to make his way home? 
the thing that Christianity says is God actually did become one of us, right? We don't have to wonder, what if God became one of us? He actually did. That's kind of the cool thing about all of this, that we don't have to like sing some song about what if God was one of us. He actually became true man. So as the, the church reflects on this, right, how is Jesus Christ truly a human being? It basically says, okay, true God, true man, how, how does that work? And basically what they, what they discover, or as they, they think about it, is it's kind of easier to say what it's not. So if he's truly God and truly man, what it means he's not is he's not like part God and part man, right? Like he's got a divine mind and he's got a human body, right? That he's part, part God, part man, or, or even like, um, like he's... Uh, there's specific times when you can point to, oh, that's human Jesus when he's angry turning over temples, and then when he's healing people, that's God Jesus. And then when he is eating food, he's human Jesus, but then when he is transfigured in glory, that's God Jesus. Right? That's actually, we would actually call that uh, Jesus being bipolar, right? That'd be a separation of his humanity and divinity, right? They don't, they don't interact. It's just like, it's like an on-off switch or like a toggle switch between one and the other. So it's not that. It's also not a mixture of God and man. So for example, if you, um, ooh, you have a hot summer day and you, uh, you get your bottle here and you fill it up with some lemonade about halfway up and then you fill it up with iced tea the rest of the way up and you shake it up, you get yourself a drink called an Arnold Palmer, right? Lemonade and iced tea. So if you combine two things, mix them up, what do you get? You get a third thing, right? It's not lemonade. It's not, it's not iced tea. It's something different. It's an Arnold Palmer. The same thing for this. If we put in this bottle, Jesus, humanity, divinity, shake it up to try and give it a good mix, what do we get? We get some third kind of weird Hercules sort of thing, right? So what that actually is is not true God and true man. It's just some weird third combination. So that's not it. Um, it's not a change either. So there was, there's people around Arius' time that would say, uh, you know, Jesus was born as a human being, and then at the baptism of the Jordan, he became God, right? Or he understood that he was God. So he's always, he's always God, and he's always a human being, right? There's no, there's no change. Um, and then I guess there's, there's another one that, um, shoot, I can't remember what it was called exactly, but the gist of it, the easiest way to think of it is, is God just dressed himself up in a Jesus suit. That, like, he really wasn't, he really wasn't truly a human, a human being. He just kind of dressed up like one for kicks and giggles to save us, you know, and all that. But, um, but that, that was the, uh, that was the idea. So all these things that he's not. So he's always God and he's always man, true God and true man. And that was really settled at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Um, also the Council of Ephesus in 431. So Ephesus in 431. Actually, the Council of Ephesus is really kind of interesting. So the Pope can't make it. Pope Leo the Great, Leo I, is the Pope. And so he sends his, he sends his, his legates, he sends his, his crew to go there. And they bring with them, they know the issue, they bring with them a letter from Leo. 
And they've got these discussions, you know, some preliminary discussions happening before the Pope's people get there. They're trying to figure out, how, is, is he truly God? Is he truly man? And uh, they stand, you know, the Pope's people get there. And like, you know, well, Leo might have something to say about that. And they read the letter from Leo describing the way this all works. And everybody said... Well, that pretty much settles it. It's not just because like Peter has spoken, it's authoritative. It was actually so insightful and so brilliant and synthesized all the discussions they were having from a thousand miles away that um, they didn't need to have any more discussions. So the Tome of Leo, if you're looking for a, looking for a Christmas time read, it's great. All right, so Jesus is incarnate and he lives among us. And to remember that... This is not like Star Wars starts in a galaxy far, far away a long, long time ago. Or it's flipped. A long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. All right, it's just some abstract time in some abstract place. That's not what this is, right? This isn't some sort of fairy tale that could have happened at any place. It happened at a specific point in history in a very specific place. Right? That's what it means that God became one of us, is he actually walked our earth at a particular moment in history. It's not just kind of like a story that um, speaks to every generation. It does, but it also historically happened. So it's important to know where this actually happened, because for whatever reason, God chose this particular place and this particular time to come. So that actually says something to us, right? He could have picked anywhere, and he could have picked any time, but this is in God's plan where it was. So you, hopefully this map looks at least a little bit familiar. Uh, you got Italy here. This is the big old Mediterranean Sea. You got France and Spain. Um, for those of you keeping track at home, this is the Adriatic Sea right here. Uh, Monday night, I uh, played a game of Trivial Pursuit. My team knew this was the Adriatic Sea. I knew this was the Adriatic Sea. The other team did not. They thought it was the Aegean Sea, which everybody knows is on the other side of Greece. Come on, people. So, I, I love maps, and uh, so then that question came up. It was right up my alley. Anyways, the important part of what we're talking about today is right down here, right? Maybe you can read it, maybe not but I can point it if you can't see the dot. This is the Holy Land right there. You can see Israel and uh, Lebanon's right above it. You get Egypt down here, you know, the Red Sea, they're crossing and going over there. Uh, you can see Syria, it's where the Assyrians are. We talked about them a couple times ago. So this is, this is where all this takes place. Maybe more specifically, this is where it is, right? You can kind of, you can see this is right down here, blown up right here. All right, and so, to just have a gist of kind of where these things take place, right? We kind of get the outline of Jesus' life. So Nazareth is, is right here. So that's where the angel appears to Mary. And that's also where Jesus, the town he grew up, grew up in. He's a Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth, he's known as. Um, and most of Jesus' ministry happens around here. So this, here's the Sea of Galilee. So everything's right around here. Capernaum was kind of the home base for Jesus and his apostles. Uh, Tiberius, they're going there too. Cana is where the, um, uh, you know, he transformed water into wine. Um, and then you got to go down. So we got the Jordan River that goes all the way down here and dumps into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea, if you ever go to the Holy Land, if you, it's not the coolest place ever. Some people go crazy about the Dead Sea. One thing I, sorry, this is, not important. Uh, 
is if you have any cuts, the water's so salty you find out that, oh, like, oh, I, I got a cut on my leg. That, that hurts. And uh, when I was there, one of, my, uh, one of my friends got, and all you can do is float on the back. So it's so salty, you're not supposed to get it in your eyes or anywhere. You just float on your back. One of my friends was in there for like 90 seconds. He got up and he walks out I'm like, where are you going? We just got here. And he turns and he goes, apparently I have hemorrhoids. <laughs> Ah, uh, that's great. <laughs> All right, uh, so, and then you get like right here is Jericho. So Jesus does his ministry up here and then makes his way south, stopping in Jericho. If you know the story of like Zacchaeus up in the tree, that happens here as Jesus is making his way. Oh, like right here, that's probably the mountain of transfiguration right there. And then Jerusalem's right here. Bethlehem's down here. So you think about the angel appears to Mary and, um, in Nazareth, and then they have that census where Joseph's got to go back to his native place while Mary's super pregnant, making this whole, whole trip on a donkey or camel or by foot and making it to Bethlehem. So that's, that's probably, um, I think it was like a four-day walk from around the Sea of Galilee down here. Yeah, it's deserty. It's not a pleasant walk. Um, yeah, and then, and then when they flee, right, they go to Egypt. So when Herod comes to kill all the kids in Bethlehem, they go down here to Egypt. And then when it's time for Jesus to come back, they come back and settle in Nazareth at his hometown, at his parents' hometown. Also, the baptism in the Jordan happens somewhere around here, just so, just so we're kind of get our, get our bearings a little bit. Okay. Knowing Jesus. All right, so Jesus begins his public ministry, right? He's going out, and there's, there's uh, I took some of the pictures. Well, uh, yeah, I used some of the pictures from St. Joseph. I guess I could have, like, straightened them out a little bit, but, uh, you know, when you're looking up, it's kind of hard to get them straight. So anyways, this little phrase in, in Matthew gives a great overview and just kind of a summary of what Jesus is doing. Jesus went around to all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and curing every disease and illness. At the sight of the crowds, his heart was moved with pity for them, because they were troubled and abandoned, like sheep without a shepherd. So we get the gist. I mean, that pretty much tells Jesus' public ministry. He's going around proclaiming the gospel, so he's going around teaching, and his primary topic that he's teaching is the kingdom, the kingdom of God, and he uses like uh, parables, right? The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, or the kingdom of God is, is already present among you. He's curing people, right? He's healing. And why is he doing this? Well, his heart is moved with pity for them, right? Because they, they're not saved, right? They, they need him to save them. So, so as we look at his public ministry, right, one of the ways we can look at it is, how is Jesus saving his people by doing this? Oh, I guess before that, everything gets kicked off in his public ministry with the baptism. So that's uh, in these three. So it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This story, if you notice, it's always kind of right at the start of his gospel, whether it's chapter three or chapter one. Remember, Mark doesn't have any of the birth nativity stories, infancy narratives. So it just he hits the ground running in Mark's gospel. 
So Jesus goes to the Jordan River where his cousin, second cousin John is, is baptizing people. And a couple things happen. One, Jesus gets in line. So he didn't need to be baptized. He's the son of God. He doesn't need to be cleansed of sin. He doesn't have, need to have the divine life in him. And John's baptizing a baptism of repentance, a sign of, like, of changing, of turning our lives. But what, what he does do is he, he joins the crowds. So it's a sign of his humanity, right? That he's near people when they're trying to convert. He's near people when they're trying to have their lives transformed. And then as he's baptized, we get a revelation of the Trinity, right? So you've got Jesus. They hear the voice of the Father that says, this is my beloved Son. And then the Holy Spirit descends upon him. So you get all three persons of the Trinity there in the, in the baptism. The voice of the Father, the Son who's baptized, and the Holy Spirit descending upon them. So you get, get that. That's right at the start there. Um, and then in, in all three of those Gospels, Jesus goes out into the desert. Um, so, like, baptism's right around here. He just, like, this, this whole area is deserty. So he probably goes somewhere out here um, into the desert for 40 days, which is really important because the, um, the God's people, as they're coming out of Egypt, before they come to the Holy Land led by Moses, they, want, they go in the desert for 40 years, and it's the sign of like their preparation for going into the Holy Land. So that's Jesus' Jesus's preparation. Um, he's tempted by the devil there. Probably those of us were familiar with that, kind of the temptations. Basically, to, to not suffer, right? You can, have, you can have all the kingdoms of the earth if you just bow down, right? You don't have to go. You don't have to do this. Or you want people to, to recognize you will throw yourself down and let the angels catch you. Then they'll believe, right? Do something crazy. People will believe you if you do that. So the devil tempts Jesus, and he's always trying to distract Jesus from, from his work there. Okay. Question so far? I guess I haven't asked that. Okay. So Jesus starts teaching. So he goes into the desert, and then he starts and uh, he starts teaching is one of the many things he does. And we'll just kind of go through maybe four or five of the kind of primary things of Jesus' teaching. And in Matthew's gospel, he starts the Sermon on the Mount. Quiz show time. How does the Sermon on the Mount start? Matthew chapter 5 through 7. I know. It starts with the Beatitudes. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who weep, for they will be comforted. All of those. So, so Jesus starts, starts his most famous sermon is the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, yeah, it, and, and it, there's all sorts of, in those three chapters, so many things that are familiar that all are right there. So he teaches them the Our Father. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. If your brother causes you to sin, or yeah, cut off your hand. If somebody presses you to service for one mile, go for two. So a lot of the familiar teachings that kind of just exist on the top of our heads are all right there in the Sermon on the Mount. So he proclaims the kingdom of God. That's like the center of his, of his teaching. He teaches us how to convert, how to you know cut off your hands if it's causing you to sin, reveals the Father's mercy. Think about all the different um, teachings he has about the Father. And ultimately, he's asked, well, what's the greatest commandment? And he describes the love of God and the love of our neighbor. And so everything possible, like how to live our lives, just 
condensed into love of God and love of neighbor. So he goes around and he teaches. And you think about how that saves us. His teaching saves us by showing us how to live, from saving us from getting misdirected as, maybe, maybe this is what I should do. Maybe I should hold that grudge, right? Maybe that's, that person really peeved me off. It's like, well, that's, Jesus can save us from our own, our own anger. And one of the ways he teaches is he uses parables. And as I'm thinking about it, maybe I should have made a whole separate slide for the, the parables, but one of the ways to look at the parables is they always have a twist. And kind of in the twist in the parables are something that people wouldn't have been expecting. That's kind of where you can see, okay, what's Jesus trying to communicate? So, uh, for example, in, um, let's see, what's a, what's a good one? The, the sower and the seed, right? We, we probably know that. So a sower went out to sow. He's throwing seed just all over the place. Some lands on rocky ground. Some of it lands amongst thorns. Some of it lands on the path. And some of it lands on good soil. And then, you know, as it's there, the rocky stuff shoots up because it doesn't have any roots. The, uh, and, and then it dies really quick. The thorns, it, the, the plants get choked out in there. And then on the ground, the birds come and they just nibble it all up. And then on the good soil, it grows 30, 60, or 100-fold. Well, kind of the twist in all of that is, why the heck was that guy sowing seed all over the place? Right? Like, I don't have a green thumb, I don't garden, I don't plant anything, but I do know that if I threw seed on 25A, it would not grow. Why was this guy throwing seed on the path? I know that if you find a good rock pile, it's probably not best just to throw a bunch of seeds in the rock pile. Um, and, and so all of this, so it, what's the twi it, it shows us who the father is. That there's nobody that the father says, you know what, I'm not, I'm not wasting my time with you. Right? Even if they're not good soil, he's still going to waste his time. Right? He's still, they're still important. So, um, so the parables, right? they've all got some sort of twist. It's basically Jesus uses stories to communicate um, his, his, his message. Uh, the thing is, oftentimes we think the parables are like, oh, Jesus spoke in their language so they could understand. But in one part of the gospel, it says he only speaks in parables so that it, it, it would hide the gospel to those who can't take it, and it would reveal it to those who would. So it, wasn't, it didn't make it easier to understand. It actually made it more intense for the people who could understand, but confused a lot of other people. I think I got that line somewhere in here. All right, so Jesus teaches. He also has some, has some exorcisms, right? So Jesus comes to do battle with the devil, and so there's people that show up all the time, right? This person's possessed. My son's possessed. Or this guy out here, the Gerasene guy, is possessed. And Jesus comes and he casts out the devil. A lot of people had said, well, is this all psychological? Right? They didn't have as great of understanding of schizophrenia or any other psychological disorder. Maybe this is all just severe mental issues that Jesus is healing people from, and they just call it the devil because they didn't know any better. Maybe. But that seems... Um, let's just hypothesize to say, you know, if you're trying to figure out what the devil's doing, you say, okay, the devil sees this guy 
doing all of this, right? He sees Jesus being protected, right? He sees uh, the healings that he's doing. He sees the teachings. He sees the crowds. He sees people changing their lives, people repenting. And uh, he's like, ooh, this doesn't look good, right? I see this kind of tide turning, and this, this guy, this Jesus guy is coming on fast. Uh, we got to do everything we can to stop him, right? So if the devil seems to be throwing everything he has at Jesus, right? So all of these possessed people, everything bad that's happening, uh, the devil is throwing at the Lord to try to distract him, to show like, oh, look how powerful I am, right? He's going to intimidate him with some snarling, whatever, demon that's possessing somebody. And of course it doesn't, right? It doesn't really do anything to Jesus. And so Jesus seems to be drawing, he draws evil out, right? It's like drawing poison out of a wound, right? He's pulling evil out of out of people so that he can so that he can save them. So is it all psychological? I I really don't think so. Um, and the answer would be no, to be completely honest. That Jesus comes to do battle with the devil, right? He comes to free us from from Satan's power, and uh, he does that in these exorcisms. So there's a lot of kind of crazy exorcisms, though. You know that one, the Gerasene demoniac. That one always just kind of like baffles me. If you know that one, there's this guy, he's in chains. Oh, let's, so the, the land of the Gerasenes is on this side of the Sea of Galilee, which isn't the side that Jesus does a lot of his ministry on. But we hear that he leaves from Capernaum, goes over to the land of the Gerasenes, casts out this demon, hops in the boat and comes back. Is that all you were going over there for? He like just touched the sore. There's this guy that's possessed. Jesus begins to cast out the devil. The devil's like, hey, just send us into that herd of swine. And so they go into the pigs, and then the pigs run down the hill and drown themselves into the water, showing you ultimately the end of evil, right? Um, the crazy thing is, that's like a half-mile run for these pigs and from the cliff into the water. Like, that would be a sight to see. Um, and it would startle. Yeah, huh? Yeah, it's a thousand pigs. Yeah. Don't tell a hog farmer that, you know, or a lover of bacon. <laughs> Not the ham hawks. <laughs> right, right. So that makes it all the, all the more interesting as to why was this person having pigs? Maybe they weren't Jewish. Anyways, <laughs> uh, I, I, was, uh, I was, Tuesday went to the new bishop of Columbus's ordination and one of one of the guys I was in the seminary with was there and he's out like east of Cincinnati um, which uh, that's like a, kind of a hill country out there and uh, and he's he's perfect for the, for there but he was showing me a picture that in his basement he has a ham hock aging like just the whole thing hanging and uh, yeah <laughs> he's he's one of the funniest guys ever anyways I yeah that's my ham story so Jesus also heals. And this is one of the more famous healings here where these four friends up top bring their crippled friend on a mat and as Jesus is in this house, they do a little little extreme makeover home edition and they bust open the roof and lower him down in the house. <clears throat> and, and so that's this whole story right here, Mark 2, 1 through 12. Interesting thing, this guy comes down, you can imagine Jesus like, what is happening? And Jesus' first response to this guy is, my son, your sins are forgiven. What? 
Nobody asked that, right? He didn't come ask him for the forgiveness of sins. And everybody's like, who, who does this guy think he is that he's forgiven sins? The fact, though, that Jesus does this first in the healing is really instructive for us. That the first thing Jesus wants to do is to heal right here before he's going to heal the body. And Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins, I say to you, pick up your mat and walk. So the physical healing is a sign of something interior that's been healed. Right? He doesn't just heal people to say, hey, look at that power, right? You're blind, now you can see. You're deaf, let me stick my hands, fingers in there. Wet willy, which he does that, right? That's gross. Um, <clears throat> so he just doesn't heal just to heal. He actually wants to change people's hearts. And if you've ever met somebody that has had like a real miracle healing, they'll be able to tell you that. Like, Something happened not just to their body, but their, actually their soul was healed too. And that, you know, can't speak universally, but that seemed, every person I've met, uh, that seems to be what the Lord really wants to do. So these healings, the point is spiritual, right? You think about even like blind Bartimaeus. Jesus walks by, he's, and he just starts shouting, Jesus, son of David, have pity on me, a sinner. Right? He's, it, you see his faith growing as he's, about to be healed, and now he, when he is healed. And that's what Jesus brings about in all of these healings. Of course, the physical healing is wonderful. It's remarkable. But there's always something on the inside that Jesus wants to heal, that he wants to transform, that he wants to restore. So, um, yeah, so we don't want to lose, like, the signs and wonders. Like, oh, there's an amazing healing happening here. Well, how's Jesus hitting hearts? And um, actually, I was talking to somebody, uh, it was over a month ago, and he was talking about... Uh, how he was having some real severe back pain. Um, we know his shoulders. He worked in drywall, and his shoulders were basically unusable, which made him basically worthless. And going through like nine months of that pain actually like transformed him, that he actually had to rely on the Lord a little bit more. And eventually, they got things figured out. And I don't remember if it's kind of like a sudden thing or what, but what he wanted to talk about is actually how he wasn't nearly as angry as a person anymore because the Lord had healed him through this. So, healings, right? Jesus heals physically, but there's always something going on that he wants to heal because he wants to save us, right? That's how he saves people is to save us from anger, from bitterness, from selfishness, right? Also, he's forming his disciples, you notice as he's walking around, he's really laser-focused, right? There's crowds, there's 5,000 people, but he focuses in on these 12 and pours into them. And even, this is the one about the, um, about the, the mustard seed, and the, or not the mustard seed, but the, the sower scattering seed. Jesus tells his apostles, the mystery of the kingdom of God has been granted to you, but to those outside, everything comes in parables, right? He he pours in and, and opens things up for them and not everybody else. And you think, well, why? Well, it's because they actually, then they're going to go out and spread the kingdom. And then the people after them are going to go out and spread the kingdom. Um, so he invests in these 12 disciples in a really particular way, um, forming them, guiding them, correcting them. Um, but even Jesus has one that goes away, right? He, for, he has these 12 that are so close and even Judas, like, betrays him. So, um, you think about in God's plan, why would he let that happen in the midst of all of this? And um, I know for, 
you know, for us, you know, sometimes we have, we have a child that kind of wanders off the path a little bit, and we can beat ourselves up. Like, what could I have done differently? What could I have said? Did we not show them that we care? Did we not teach them how to pray? And all of those different things. And I think Jesus gives, you know, he enters into the human problem. And so he's, he shows us, like, if Jesus Christ had one of his apostles who was with him for three years wander away, um, don't beat ourselves up too much if we have that happen in our own lives. And sometimes there's nothing, nothing you could do. There's nothing Jesus could have done differently. Else he would have. All right, so he forms disciples. Oh, the word disciple um, comes from the, the Latin word discipuli, which means student. So it also has, comes in that word discipline, right? A student needs discipline. A disciple's a student. So they're students of the master, of the teacher. All right, and then as Jesus, so he's doing all this stuff up around the Sea of Galilee, and as he begins to make his way south, he makes a stop on the top of a mountain in the Transfiguration. So Jesus, right here, we got this, he's, his, basically his glory is revealed of who he is, that he's, he's God himself. And so we hear like his clothes are white, there's a cloud, always God's presence. You think about the cloud on the top of Mount Sinai that Moses enters into. And, uh, and the voice of the Father's there again, saying the same thing that he said at the baptism. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And this cloud represents the Holy Trinity, or the Holy Spirit. So you get a revelation of the Trinity again, a little connection with baptism. And Peter, James, and John are there also. So not only does he have a 12, but then he's got this inner three who seem to be with him at kind of incredible times. Moses and Elijah are present. They're talking about his exodus, right? His own Passover, the way he's going to save us. Save us. So this is a really kind of critical part in, in the, uh, the story of Christ and his, his journey to save us. Because you get the glory, right? And he tells them, don't say anything until, until I've, I've, uh, I've risen from the dead. And that kind of kicks off the path south, right? They're going south towards Jerusalem, and as they're, they're on their way, they run into all sorts of things. But eventually they make it to Jerusalem. And so on a Sunday, Jesus enters into Jerusalem, right? Riding on that donkey, they basically glorify him as the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're cutting their palm branches. They're all excited that the Messiah is here. And then Jesus starts going to the temple, Right? And they, they've already had some scuffles with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You know, they're already like, oh, this Jesus guy. We need to kind of get rid of this guy. Um, and, uh, but Jesus doesn't like hide and say, oh, they don't like me. I'm just going to keep to myself. He basically, as much as it seems like, he goes to pick a fight the whole time, right? He's not saying things that are going to like be easy for them to hear. So this whole thing about, is he really God? Right? And that's why they, they get upset, is because they call him a blasphemer. So, for example, he says something like, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, whoever holds a grudge against you know, will be liable to judgment. And uh, he basically makes himself greater than Moses, right? He's the teacher. Moses taught God, God's law, and he's saying, But I say to you. So he's putting himself up there. Also, the temple, like Jesus respects the temple, but then he goes and he says, uh, the hour is coming, well, you won't worship here, but you're going to worship in spirit and truth in me. So he's greater than the temple, 
And then this whole fact that he's the one God, right? I and the Father are one. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So basically, he's picking a fight the whole time this week. And eventually, he sees the end. He knows when the end is coming. And the night before he dies, he has a, a supper, right? On that Thursday night where he gathers the disciple, they celebrate the Passover meal. And what he does, and we, we'll get to this in the Eucharist part, um, but he transforms his sacrifice into a meal. Right? He transforms his offering of love into a commemorative meal that he tells them to do this in memory of me. Right? So he transforms suffering through love and then he transforms this act of love into a meal. So that's the, the Last Supper. And then from the Last Supper, we hear they sing a hymn, and they go out to the garden. Jesus is intensely sweating, so much so that he's sweating blood. And what he's doing is he's wrestling with what God is asking him to do. I, uh, let this chalice pass from me, but not, not your will, not my will, but your will be done. And then Judas shows up there. He's got his whole crew we get the naked man there. Everybody knows the story of the naked man, right? Okay, I'm getting some head nods. If anybody wants to hear this. Yeah. You're looking at me confused, Lois. Naked man. Yeah. I'm good. I was fishing for somebody to say that. So, so the whole crew comes up there, right? And they arrest Jesus. His people, his friends scatter. And... There's this one young man that's just in the garden, and they go to try to grab him too. And they grab his clothes, but he scurries away, basically runs out of his clothes, buck naked. The tradition is that this is actually St. Mark, because um, it only shows up in Mark's Gospel. And there's, there's some good reasons why, but there's a naked man who runs away nootsie tootsie in the uh, Gospel. So. You should ask St. Mark. <laughs> in the gospel, you know, and just giving the gospel truth. All right, so he's arrested that Thursday night, and the first thing is he goes before the Sanhedrin, so these like Jewish leaders, uh, he goes before them, they basically sentence him to, uh, that he's got to go before Pontius Pilate, and then uh, the next morning he goes to trial under Pontius Pilate, this guy, and this part of the creed that we say he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Um, there's only two other people whose names make it in the creed, Jesus and Mary. And the other one's Pontius Pilate, right? Not Peter, not Joseph. Pontius Pilate is forever remembered in this. Pontius Pilate, in the trial, he wrestles with this because he, he even says he believes Jesus is innocent but he didn't want to tick off all of his constituents, right? He believes that Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. He's got no reason to crucify him. But people want him dead, and he's, he's a man of the people. You've got to give the people what they want, right? Um, so he's remembered for... Um, it sounds harsh. I was going to say spine, being spineless. But uh, in some ways, that's true. Is that to provide historical context? Like, I mean, oh, why he's included in here? I don't know. I don't know if that was ever debated. Like, no, we don't need to put him in there. But maybe it is. You know, it's at this particular place when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. Makes sense. 
So he's scourged, right? He's crowned with thorns. You often see Jesus with a crown of thorns. Scourge basically means they took whips of hooks and lacerated his flesh. He has to carry his cross, get some help along the way, Simon the Cyrenian, and, uh, and he's crucified on the cross, which is the most brutal of deaths that the Romans could ever come up with. Right? They were really good at executing people, and, um, and they made it brutal, and uh, yeah. So, so is why? Why does he do it in this way, right? Was there no other way? Um, so we see Jesus, first of all, does this willingly, right? He enters into this willingly. And we even see that in one of the Eucharistic prayers. He entered willingly into his passion. And then his, his death is an offering to the Father, right? He shows us love, right? No greater love does one have than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus basically um, shows us what it means to love and actually loves us in this. And then where Adam is disobedient, Jesus Christ is perfectly obedient, even to the point of death, right? Could he have just come down here and wixed his fingers and say, hey, let's just fix everything. But he actually saves us in the most dramatic possible way. And one of the things he does is he, he takes upon himself the worst of humanity. Think about all that Jesus goes through. It's not just like the physical suffering. Like, that's real. You know, lacerated flesh, carrying this heavy cross, beaten, whipped, uh, crowned with thorns. Like, all the physical stuff's brutal. His friends abandon him, who he's poured his life into, how he shared them, loved them, ate with them. They all abandon him. I don't know which one of those two is worse, but then also on top of that, political injustice, right? Where he's honest, he's truthful, everybody knows it, and yet he's killed anyways, right? The injustice and all that and doesn't get a fair trial. And so he, he draws all of this to himself. Why? I think so that when, uh, when we go through that, right? When we feel like somebody we care about is like abandoning us, Jesus just doesn't sit up in his throne in heaven and say, yeah, it st stinks to be you, right? That sounds really hard. He can actually say, I've been there, right? Oh, you feel like things aren't just, they're not fair? I know, I've been there. It was hard. And so he's actually really close to us because he draws suffering to himself, right? Like, I mean, we got all these priests having shoulder surgery, like, right? Your, your shoulder's in pain, and Jesus can say, yeah, so is mine. And I'm close to you because I know that pain's real. So, um, so he takes the worst of humanity upon himself to show that God's presence is there in the worst. And so his death redeems us, right? It restores us. It saved us. He loved us to the end. But of course, the good news is that's not the end of the story. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. So Jesus rose from the dead, and this is, this is the center of our faith, right? This is the center of what we believe about Jesus Christ, is that his death was not the end, but he actually rose, he actually rose from the dead. The first part of this, though, he descended into hell, and St. Peter talks about this in his first letter. Actually, I'm going to, let's see if we can find this and read this. I think it's 1 Peter 3, but... Um, I could be wrong. Yeah, For, so 1 Peter 3, 18 through 19. Oh, let's do 20. 
For Christ also suffered for sins once, the righteous for the sake of the unrighteous, that he might lead you to God. Put to death in the flesh, he was brought to life in the spirit. In it, he also went to preach to the spirits in prison, who had once been disobedient, while God patiently waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which few persons, eight and all, were saved through water. So he goes to preach to the spirits. Right? Think like, wow. That's not often what we think about, well, what Jesus does. Like, what's he doing that day, right? Holy Saturday. He's saving people. That's what he's always about. That Adam and Abraham and Isaac and Noah and David, Isaiah, they're all, they don't have access to heaven yet. So he draw, brings them, he goes to save them. He goes to preach to them. And there's this beautiful homily uh, from Holy Saturday. If you just ever like Google ancient Christian homily, Holy Saturday, it'll, it'll come up immediately. But it talks about Jesus going to seek out, right? He's going to seek out, as the good shepherd, those who are lost. Um, last night, somebody asked about, so were, were all these people burning in hell for, you know, a thousand years waiting for Christ, right? They don't have access to heaven. Are they in hell? And I don't know if there's a definitive answer to that, um, kind of my own spitballing is that their, light, their life in earth continues in the afterlife, right? So they kind of keep whatever relationship they have with God continues. Whereas like the definitive pain of hell is the fact that there's no presence of God. The fact that God's not there is what makes hell the worst. His presence, his, his goodness, his love, his mercy, his light, his truth, none of that is present in hell. And that's the worst of it. So my own guess, and this could be wrong, and if some, somebody thinks it is, that's, that's fine, is that for these um, great saints of the Old Testament, Elijah, um, all of them, like their life with God continued after the death, but it wasn't fulfilled as it would be in heaven, right? They don't have access to Jesus Christ. So that's my own surmisals. But anyways, after that, Jesus does really rise from the dead. And it's a historical event not merely symbolic, like it actually happened. Right? Sometimes people say, well, the disciples wished Jesus to rise from the dead, so they, they just kind of acted like he did because he was still with them in spirit. And uh, we just say, no, it, it actually happened. And the reasons for that are actually threefold. I only put two here. One, the empty tomb, right? They go to the tomb and he's not there. That, of course, is not enough, is not enough itself because somebody could have stolen the body. That's what people said happened in Matthew's gospel. But he also appears to them. He appears to Mary Magdalene, appears to Peter, appears to all the, all the crew. Um, and then also, you could add to this, their lives are changed. Right? If Jesus really didn't rise from the dead, and they just kind of made it up, and it's like, well, we wished he rise, rose from the dead. You don't die for that. You don't go to the end of your life off of a wish or a hope or something that didn't actually happen. But the boldness that happens, that changes in them, is a sign that, yeah, life was different, that they saw him. And then this is the, the center of it all. If Christ had not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain, St. Paul says, and your faith is in vain. 1 Corinthians 15. Everything we do is worthless. If Jesus hasn't ridden from the dead, our whole faith, everything we've done, pointless. So it's important. And then this last thing, this is what Jesus tells Mary Magdalene, go and tell my brethren. Jesus often talks to the apostles as his friends, 
as his disciples, but now after his resurrection, there's family, his brothers. So that's kind of cool. Um, maybe just one last thing. We're in the midst of Easter season. So Jesus is, um, before he ascends into heaven, he's with him for 40 days. And one of the things you notice about Jesus in between the resurrection and the ascension is he's the good shepherd. So he constantly goes to find people who are lost, whether it's the souls in hell, whether it's Peter and the guys who decide, I'm going fishing. It's like, you guys, I'm coming to find you. Or the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, he goes and he finds them. They're lost, they're going the wrong way. Or Thomas, who doesn't believe, it says, unless I see his nail marks and touch my hand in his side, I'm not believing. And Jesus says, all right, I'm going to come find you. Give you faith, Thomas. So he's, he's really the good shepherd there. All right, so he's around for 40 days, good shepherd in and around, and then he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So this is what we get, and uh, they're all like looking on, and the angels are like, hey, what are you guys doing? What are you looking at? Um, so it's not that Jesus like went up to heavens, and if we just like flew a plane in the right place, we would find him there, but he actually ascends into a, the heavenly dimension, right? Into the, the world of, of heaven. And that's the meaning of this, in that Jesus places our humanity now is in heaven, because he's still true God, he's still true man. And so humanity lives in heaven as with Jesus, right? He takes us to heaven. It doesn't change God now that humanity's there, it changes us. Now that our humanity lives with God in, in heaven through Christ. And so he goes up to heaven um, for, yeah, after 40 days, 40 days, of course, is important for, uh, you know, 40, 40 days and 40 nights of the flood, 40 years in the desert, wandering, and he'll come again to judge the living and the dead. We'll have a whole, whole session on that. And then the next thing's, you know, he sends the Holy Spirit after 10 days at Pentecost. So, yeah. So it's important that Jesus ascends into heaven because if he was still walking around in, on earth, he would only be able to be present in one place, you know, whether it's the Holy Land or maybe he would have walked his way to Turkey or, you know, Russia by now, probably needs to go to Russia. Um, but, uh, but now that he ascends, he's accessible to all of us, right? Through the sacraments, through the sending of the Holy Spirit. He's not just in one place anymore, but he's accessible to all of us um, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, so that's the ascension. And that is that. Any questions? The first 40 days, does that trigger the rest of the scenario? The first 40 days, so like the flood? The flood, yeah. yeah. So that triggered everything else in 40 days? I, I guess, you know, like, um, there's different, you know, like, sc Scripture has, like, themes that run, run through it, right? And it kind of, like, and, and so it, it shows you that things relate. And I guess, you know, God could have picked 30 days for the flood. You know, why the first one was 40 and then 40 years in the wilderness and Jesus 40 days in the desert. I don't know why 40 was the number that he settled on. I guess the important thing it is, is just to realize it is the number that he settled on. So, um, yeah, I don't know what in, in God's mind was like, yeah, 40 is the number. Well, I know that in the, um, in the wilderness, which comes after the flood, in the, the story of the wilderness, right, they wanted, they, he wanted the generation to die. 
uh, you know, it's like, all right, we're, we, we got to raise up a new generation. So I guess it's going to take about 40 years for that. So maybe that could be it, you know, it was kind of the, the time of a generation, so to speak. Yeah. Any other questions? That's a good one with a mm, halfway answer. <laughs> you look like you're working on something, Barb. Question? No? Oh, I was going to say it's worth a shot. Thanks. Back then, 40 years wasn't a, I mean, 20 years wasn't a generation. You lived to be hundreds of years old. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even in the Psalms, the Psalms, the Psalms you hear about 70 years or 80 who are strong, right? So it seems to be that's 70 years. But you think, well, maybe um, if by the time, right, so the leaders maybe of their community are, uh, you know, from 65 years old down to 25 years old, right? So it's maybe a time for a new generation of leaders to come up in their community. These are surmisals. Okay. So, couple things. Uh, next time, next week, we're back in the basement. Uh, we'll be talking about the Holy Spirit right here. I will be in Connecticut, so I won't be here. Um, Father Jedediah has got a workshop that he is kind of required to go to uh, for the Archdiocese Young Priests. Um, so we'll have one of the newly ordained covering masses. But um, the one, the only, Deacon Alex Dugas will be here for the summer catechesis. So he'll show you what a real tall person looks like. So... Uh, yeah, so same time, same place. He'll be talking about the Holy Spirit and, um, oh yeah, not the same place, old place back in town. So with that, oh, one other thing, we just got these in. They'll be out at, out at the masses this week, but, uh, we got a new mass schedule. So we got fridge magnets, all the confession times too. So, uh, that's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Good work, Grace. She made all these. She bought the magnets, sliced them up, and then got paint out and painted them all. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, as we prepare for the great feast of Pentecost, we invite you into our lives. We ask that you may animate our faith, our hope, and our charity, so that we may live as the beloved sons and daughters that God has created us to be. We ask that you may be present in all of our lives and, and all of those who are furthest from you, especially amongst our family and friends. We pray for all of those who are at Vacation Bible School this week, all of us gathered here today, that we may always live as your beloved children. We ask all of this through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a great day, everybody. Have a great two weeks.